From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to another two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey of the Hope Crew with me, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. In the flesh, we are in the Business Radio studio in Huntsman Hall on the campus of the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. It's spring break here. It's a little quiet on campus, but we all made it in. We want to take advantage of the chance to be in person. Fellas, before we get started, two anniversaries we're marking this week. The oldest of the anniversaries is our eighth anniversary. Our first show, I believe, was March 5th, 2014. This is about as close as we're going to get to that this year. So, Happy anniversary to you, fellas. It's That's been awesome. A, a That's long awesome. Run. Congratulations to all of us. Congratulations. We're still running. I believe we're the only show that's still running, certainly in its current form, meaning there's other shows that might have started two hours, they've gone to something shorter, or they've changed hosts. Mo- most it's of been cha- us for we get, four. We get new material every week. <laughs> that's, that's great. It. That's <laughs> the world, true. The world's feeding us pretty good material. Um, which brings to mind the second anniversary, which is two years ago, approximately now, we had our last show before the pandemic interrupted. No, it wasn't approximately. My son, who was here as a student, uh, went to home for spring break and never went back. That's so it right. was exactly at the mm-hmm. time of spring break last year. So technically it was March 11th, but it was the it was the spring break Wednesday. We were running live then. I went back and looked at the show. Eric, you hosted by yourself that day. You were We all, were, I was supposed to be in Texas, ended up getting redirected for a funeral, but we must have been traveling. Eric hosted by himself. He had... The president of the Bucks on as a guest, and then he had Kevin Queeley, the Upshot Data Viz friend of ours. I remember that, and then guest. I just spoke to the voices that are always in my own head. So that that worked out <laughs> fine for the rest of it. I just asked myself questions and answered them. I, I knew that I was at Sloan two years ago. I don't know whether right. I missed the show because of it, but it was dramatically lower attendance, two, and many people got COVID. They didn't was, realize they got that it until later. That was the beginning. That was yeah, the yeah, beginning. That was the beginning. Good point. Yep. Um, well, we we took a little hiatus after that show. We were off for we missed two weeks. We came back in early April and started doing some version of what we're doing now. I just wanted to know it. Note it. Early March brings those things to mind. All right, guys. Usual usual plan of action here. COVID in the first quarter. We've got interview. Super interesting interview on the NBA in the fourth quarter, and a couple of open segments in the middle. Let's start with. The most obvious question, which is, why is Audie Weiner not wearing a mask? We're sitting in here a mask, as we usually are. Audie has started his civil disobedience phase. Uh, well, let's yeah. just start off by, by pointing out that basically the CDC finally acknowledged what most people know, including Shane and all of you, that most of this has been theatrical. And, uh, and they, they dropped their, their insistence. So almost every you know, red, you know, blue state, city... Schools have gotten rid of the requirement, so it's it's essentially gone when, by now. When you and that started on Friday. Just to clear, when you say it's theatrical, you're not doubting the empirical fact that masks help prevent the spread of the disease, right? Well, let's let's okay. So that is a that is a question you have to back up a little bit. So masks can't hurt. But they do have costs, and that is that are not disease related. Which, I was just talking purely the disease okay. related. So, so the disease related. So that's actually interesting. So in the right circumstance and worn properly, I don't doubt it that it does. So, so, it, so in as, a hospital, as an example of a circumstance, yeah, uh, four people talking for two hours in a closed room. <laughs> 
do you think masks Hypo- lower? Do you think no, masks lower the odds? <laughs> if okay. one of us walked in with COVID, does that lower my odds? No, not at all. Of catching it? No, not at all. Because first of all, you know, you have giant gaps in your masks. I mean, like looking at Eric here, he hasn't even pinched it around his nose. Um, <laughs> it's pinched. I have a big it's nose. Not, it's, it's not. Pinched. I cut this gap for no, a straw. You, you, yours is pretty. Yours is a pretty good one. But I bet it's not not tight around. Let me ask you. Here's a basic question yeah. to prevent you for two hours in a room like this. Yeah. When you take it off, if I don't see deep red marks around your face, you weren't wearing it in a way that's useful. In the beginning, talk about two years ago, my friend Benabella, who is the head of our um, emergency medicine here at Penn, yeah. was posting on Facebook what he looked like after hours wearing a mask, and it was deep uh, uh, grooves around his uh, eyes. Yeah, no, That's an effective on, mask. Well, okay, but I think you're, you're, you're binary. Kind of, yeah, exactly. This but, is too binary. We, like, we've talked a about this on, this on our show a little bit, and one of the things we talked about was I would argue that it is something that potentially has a, a slight benefit in short encounters. In other words, it, where you're where you're essentially the, the it lowers the amount of activation in, in your nearby neighborhood over two okay. hours. Every single droplet that you're emitting that's coming through. Remember, it's an aerosol. It's not a droplet based. It's not droplet based disease. It's aerosol. Very small particles, which will be stopped by a respirator, provided so you, you don't have holes in so your mask. Uh, that's to go out of size. It, it, it's airborne, and yeah, you, you it's I'm, I'm solid you have it, a sealed You're going to give it to me. I mean, well, I, you, that's your position. Your position oh, is absolutely. we're going to come in here for two hours, and we all wear a mask. But yeah. you think because this is quite a sealed room, and it's pretty mm-hmm. small. This is probably a, you know, like a twelve by twelve foot room. You're, you're saying it, we're completely commingling our respiratory. Yes, absolutely. And the only way to do that would have a really tight mask. And none of us are wearing. Well, a very yeah, tight to, mask. to lower the odds, I, I, again, you're, I, I feel like it's still being too binary. To lower the odds, zero. Yeah, we'd have to like have very tight kind of mask. Well, to zero, but not I mean, be in the same by, room the, by the very logic of it being able to sneak in through, like through little crevices, like like being completely exposed, like my mouth just being open with no mask, <laughs> has to be. <laughs> has to increase the odds even more, right? I mean, just yeah, let me ask by you a question, Shane. Continuity let me ask you, theorem let me, or let me ask like you a that. question, Shane. If I toss a coin a hundred times with, a, let's say, one time with a probably fifty percent chance of a heads, I get a fifty percent chance of heads. If I, if it were ninety percent chance of say tails, then obviously one 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 toss of the coin is going to be much higher than 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 with fifty percent than say ninety percent or, or the, essentially what I'm arguing is if something a small probability when you do it once has essentially the, has a small probability, but if you do it a hundred times, if it has a one in ten. I'm going to have near certainty of getting uh, of getting ahead one in ten a hundred times, as well as I would have if it was a half one hundred times. It's no difference. So you're 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 essentially pointing out that yes, you think it's, it's sat- the probability is saturated if we say absolutely a hundred percent. I've actually studied some of this da- data because it was st- a lot of this stuff came out you know some time ago looking at musicians, and in the first ten minutes the the cloud around a musician's face is fairly concentrated, and this is why ventilation matters. Why an airline potentially has a much better record than a room like Dion, this. Dion, can you get a fan in here? I got a guy without a mask, and we need some ventilation. <laughs> right. By the way, I will say that some of the industrial it, size ventilations is much more rapid. It has to do with number of exchanges per hour. We probably have three exchanges per hour. It, let me just say, the calculation you just suggested is actually one I've not heard before, but is actually an interesting one. So the question becomes, let's just translate it here. So what is a coin flip? So here is it every time I inhale, maybe. Maybe that's a coin flip. How many am I going to do in some period of time? Mm -hmm. And what you're pointing out is, you know, 1 minus 1 minus P raised to some power goes to 1 very, very quickly, no matter what the value of P is, if N is big enough. In other words, 1 minus P raised to the power N, 1 minus P being, let's say, the probability of not getting it, 
raising it to the power n, how many breaths I'm going to take in two hours, that's going to zero. One minus zero is going to one. And your claiming is the reduction in probability by wearing a mask, given we're in this environment, is probably not going to lower it enough that it's going to make that much no, of a difference. No, and it's also inconsequential relative to the sizes of the things that do matter, which is base rate in the community, which is very, very low right now, which is why the CDC said don't bother. Um, and given also by the fact that I've had it relatively recently, some of us here may or may not have had it relatively recently, and that is something that is it that matters and is part of our 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 concern. And secondly, and this is the third, I guess this is my third thing. I when I got COVID and. I didn't, I didn't even be bat an eye. I didn't expect to have a problem. didn't have a problem. I've studied the data pretty in-depth. I know my age and health and vaccination status. And it's simply not something to worry about. So the so I have to then ask the, to the fourth point is, what do we lose from this? And frankly, we, we're wearing headphones. We're in the studio. It's actually quite wonderful. And I do hear you all quite well because of the microphones and the, and the headphones. But in, when I'm in an ordinary conversation with someone in an ordinary setting, particularly with a little bit of ambient noise... I have a very hard time understanding what someone says, and that's partly because of my age-related hearing loss. I can't tell the difference between an S and an R, which has driven my my kids on the phone crazy, um, and it's hard for me, and I can't quite hear it, and when you wear a mask, I can't see your lips move. And so that actually gives a little bit of advantage. So that's a, that's a cost for me personally. But there's lots of other costs, particularly, and those are borne mostly by children, I would argue. But listen, my but the real issue is it's not mandated. I'm sitting here now. I have my, my drink. It's, we're here at Penn. I was we, just we about to point out, right, you haven't yeah, used that thing in 15 that's, minutes, that's dude. That's because I've been talking. Um, <laughs> talking. But we, we went at Penn from um, a strict no mask policy to eat and drink anywhere you want, except for a classroom. I mean, it is mandated. Um, there's still the signs on the building. Yeah, uh, sure there are. Um, and... Uh, well, but but the, nevertheless, it doesn't say what we all know, which is there are exclusions to that. So, so we'll I, just I, talk I, so, about so that. So would, uh, Eric's got to follow up just real quick. No, no you go ahead, Eric. You go no, ahead. no, I was going to say, what con- so the only thing that concerns me about what you're suggesting is it is about what Shane and Cade were saying earlier is the dichotomy of it. For example, we don't know with certainty the long-term effects of COVID. There, there's been recent studies that have shown, matter of fact, this is the study that, uh, you know, what caught my eye was that um, there's an effect on your brain. So this has now been right. studied by people that study, you know, both brain activity, brain mass, This came et out in, like, Nature This Week. Correct. Right? Just came out in Nature This Week that there is definitely an impact. And actually, the other thing is, we don't know, like, I don't think with certainty we know, you know, Adi said he had COVID. Well, how much protection is that giving you and for how long a period of time? And if you get COVID the second time, is it better? Is it worse? Does it compound it? So to me, it's not like you've said anything wrong, just that there are certain assumptions you've made that have, for me, for my personal judgment as a statistician, too much certainty associated with it. There's still too many unknowns. And if I can wear a mask, even if you're right, maybe it's not pinched properly, maybe not this, but it lowers my chances of further damage to an already damaged 55-year-old body, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think it's in the face of all these different levels of uncertainty that are basically we're probably never going to really clarify. Um, I, you know, it's it's just all about where an individual lies on that kind of risk adversity, risk tolerance spectrum. I'm, I mean, I'm with Audi if, if, if that, you know, if we had all, if we all agreed ahead of time that we weren't going to wear masks. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the no mask camp. We would frankly. be not wearing masks. We were sitting at dinner, and we would in, in a minute. We all have. That's right. We would have better ventilation at a restaurant. Not sure than we would. We, have in we this would have booth. better ventilation yes, than would. this room. Uh-huh, sure. But we would also be exposed to many other people. 
which yeah. we're not in this room. This is true. So I would yeah. rather, if you want to talk about odds, I would rather this room than a restaurant. That's actually a very interesting question about, sure. would you rather have gotcha. more? Di- no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. It's not for sure. Uh, because again, rather- it, 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 uh, you right, didn't let ahead. me finish my point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You didn't let me finish my point, which is, you know, I, I'm wearing a mask less about my own personal risk. I, I'm more risk tolerant. It's less about my own personal risk adversity wearing this mask. It's more about respecting what I've inferred is more risk adversity, less risk tolerance. On part of some other people. And I happen to appreciate it as a person. I'm speaking <laughs> well, myself. Okay. Thank you. And I appreciate so, so that. So here I think there's a counterside of that. And I'm going to report what happened at Tufts University where they had their spring play, their spring musical, Spring Awakening. And the act- actors and, and were forced to wear masks. This is an enormous cost. This is, a, this is probably for many of them the highlight of their, of their college experience to have roles in the, in the, in the musical. And, and it's severely limited in the performance quality to watch actors perform in masks, and which is why none of the performances which are going on across the country are masked. I mean, I've been to several. You probably all have. No one's making performers wear masks. Yet that was the policy. And they argue, just as you, this is part of, I don't know, what are they talking about? I don't get it. They don't recognize that wearing a mask um, is, if you, if you want to make it your own personal decision, sure, but it affects other people's decisions around you. And when, you, when someone who is, who is, is committed to wearing it doesn't explain why they're doing so, you get a group thing. So let me, so, and then all of a sudden you have these kind of policies and everyone afraid to go against them. They're happening all over the country. I just, for example, my, my nephew goes to Stuyvesant High School. They don't have a mask mandate anymore. You can do whatever you want. Guess what? Everybody's wearing it. Hmm. And my, my nep- other nephew, Sonny, goes to a private school, also, same New York City, also, no one's wearing it. Well, you can see that kind of behavior That's is a simply collect- a, collect- a collective behavior. behavior. But there's cost to that. And that, and that cost isn't borne all equally. So as I said before, for those people who don't hear as well, they suffer more than people who hear better. For those people who perform, they suffer much more than people who don't perform. So let me ask you a question. I, I, this is related, but you'll see the relationship in a second. Um, you know, I have fair skin. All my kids have fair skin except for one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever they were going out in the sun, they'd have this app that would tell them, this is how much time you can spend, and you're still going to be okay and not get burned. Would you be happier... If we had an app on our phone that said, okay, it's a 12 by 12 room, there's four people in it, there's poor ventilation, you type in all this information, here's the level of risk you're at, therefore we recommend, let's imagine we could just have a constant app that said, you know, it could read our ambient surroundings, high risk, medium risk, low risk, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. I'd be happy with that, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, first of all, you'd have to be relatively accurate, but I'm going to point well, I'm out... I'm assuming that you could get but data. But I'm pointing out that the real differential is that I'm committed to this to the cost of wearing masks. I can't see your faces. I can't see your expressions. I can't see how you're reacting, and I can't see this but, all day and long. It, and I and when I'm in public, I don't see it. I don't see it behind the with the person behind the counter when they give me my and, coffee. You're, and, and, and I'll just say it facetiously. You're, 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 you're also not at my funeral. Yeah. <laughs> You're also, you, but you're, you're you're kind of. I, I think I think you're kind of you're, you're feeling like a victim of this collective health, collective kind of public health. I'm taking thing. a stand. Um, how did you feel about uh, cigarettes? Were you happy when they were banned from restaurants or no? You see, you see. Let me ask you a question. Um, first of all, are you equating the knowledge we know about the the damage of secondary secondhand smoke? 
to the I'm not the equating. Game in, in, I mean, you have to be because you're trying to make an analogy here with two yeah, things I'm which affect sizes. Are I'm making an analogy massive. about well, then, collective okay, kind then I'm of not, public I'm health not gonna, I'm not going to com- com- compare something that for which for which is a known large effect causal. To something like mass. Is secondhand smoke a really known large effect? Sure. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. All right, gentlemen. Uh, the it's provocative. I love I, it. I know you want it. You like to be provocative. Um, the sh- sh- Shane's Shane's reacting to the vehemence. I think you're bringing, right. and it 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 feels. A, we're used to getting the intellectual Audi, and this has a little bit of the cause. The cause, and the one who talks about uncertainty all the time. Well, you have to, you know, so at some point you have to make a make a decision, right? So, and and I, sometime so, between the last time we saw you and this time. Well, the reason why is, is I feel like all the governmental <laughs> decrees have ended. And yet everyone is still, com- not to say everyone, huge numbers of people are committed to masking. And I feel mm-hmm. like unless scientists turn around and say, you know what, we, it's not, if you're committed to masking now, you're committed to masking permanently. And I don't think that's a, something that you should well, be doing. Well, you, I mean, uh, you give people a time to adjust. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, okay. what, what, yeah. What, yeah, I mean, I, I, right. I, I mean, I think we are in a great transitional phase here, hopefully transitional phase towards a future where there is a lot less masking. Um you know, and and in various ways, I guess I've all I've also expressed kind of impatience with the pace of that because people are just in very different kind of intellectual position in terms of their own risk tolerance, risk adversity. So I think, yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I wonder about airplanes. I wonder about you know, kind of. I guess larger events now sort of are coming back, but you know, shows and stuff like that. You know, if if, if I went to uh, the Philharmonic. And why, you know, I'm not sure I would want to necessarily wear a mask, but if everybody else was, I would. I mean, th- these are the dynamics that we're kind See, of experiencing like, well, in society also, right now. I'm also reacting to a couple of things. So I'm I'm perfectly fine to wear one on an airplane, on a train, public transportation, in places where communally people have to gather and we have to all kind of uh, observe a, a decent sort of level of, of care. But we're in a room with three of our friends. We would be sitting in a restaurant together. And I see this in other, in other some small kind of contained environments. And and I, I asked someone, I asked someone the other day who was wearing a mask in a, in a setting where no one else was wearing a mask. And it's someone who I know has no risk factors. And and he just said, well, it's just my choice to do so. And obviously it is. But my, res- my response was the, the response I gave to you earlier, which is I really just don't see how things are going to get better. Um, and and I mean that. I mean your 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 point, Kate. I think is right. Is that people do need to get used to it. And I think my son reported an event where it started. Everybody was wearing masks, and by the end of it, nobody was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is probably something that will just happen naturally. That mm-hmm. people will just get used to it. But I do think it it will happen because people will kind of help it along. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. So maybe this will segue into my what caught my eye, which is still, I still go back. I go every day to the CDC data. And let me say the news that I've seen that is what I would have expected, sort of, which is there's no doubt we've had a fast up and fairly fast down with the number of cases, at least cases that the CDC measures with Omicron. The thing we still haven't seen, and this is why I'm still concerned, is that we're still seeing somewhere between 13 to 1500 deaths a day. That number has not come down since the peak. It's still, you know, it still makes this seven day average we're having now higher than at any point except for two different peaks. I mean, it's really high still. So I'm still concerned, which is why while the positivity rate is going down, I get that. The number of cases is well down. It's under 50,000 now, seven-day average, which is way down from where it was. 
the number of deaths still is not. And I'm just basing on what Adi has said for the last two years. The one thing that I understand, it could be deaths with Omicron. Yeah, I mean, that would be my question. No, no, I understand that. But still, there are, these people are dying. I assume they can measure that pretty well. And these people are dying either from COVID or with COVID. I don't know what the fraction is, but the number of fraction, deaths though. is still huge. It's and pr- and the number of, by the way, the number of the ratio of deaths to measured cases is way up. Now, that could be because the number of cases is still not being measured properly. Or it could just be we're sitting here at a time now where because of policies and other things that people aren't as protected as they were before. But that still concerns me. The death rate is still extraordinarily high. Very, very high. But, I, I mean, again, I guess I, I, I kind of wonder. I think I, I think it is an important question whether these pe- the people that are still dying, do they just happen to have COVID, and are di- but that's not why they're dying? Or is are they actually dying from COVID? Because, again, if it's endemic and it's just sort of this thing, you know, Omicron especially, that, like, kind of is very easy to spread, is kind of always circulating. Um, but you're right. It would have to be something that was non-stationary over the last two years because you could make that claim for the last two years that yeah. some people have died with COVID as opposed yeah. to without. But the ratio would have to be much higher now to it, not be as concerned about the death rate, which is still higher than if I added up well, the so 730 we, days that have happened since COVID, roughly – this death rate right now is higher than probably 710 of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we don't know the, the incentives that, that the hospitals have and how those might have changed. People have told very cynical stories or, or hypothesized cynically about hospitals might have motivation to ascribe death to COVID. I, I, and, I, and I don't know, but I mean, I do know that people respond to incentives, and I do know that our healthcare system is rife with warped incentives, and so that's entirely possible something like that exists. But there is many, many doctors in emergency rooms at hospitals have reported that cases of, of deaths that are with COVID are marked as COVID deaths. And much more interesting is on the borderline where people who's, who have severe chronic illnesses get COVID, which exacerbates their chronic illness, and they die epsilon quicker, if you right, will, to use right. mathematical language. That absolutely gets counted as a COVID case. So if you, And that is tracked very differently across different counties, different states, different yeah. countries. So I remember uh, specifically, as I, as I mentioned many times in the show, Israel tracks c- cases very accurately, and they had reported no deaths of COVID in Omicron under age 18. And yet in the newspaper, someone sent me a newspaper quote, and I mentioned that, and said, here, J- Jerusalem Post reports a five-year-old dying dying of COVID. Well, that actually was the headline. If you read the article, it turned out they were very, very sick already in the hospital and their COVID Jeez. exasperated, okay. yeah. or uh, 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 their uh, exacerbated and exacerbated uh, their COVID. And, and so the official government statistic did not write them as a COVID death. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would actually, just to follow up with, with Eric, there's, this is, Omicron was so much more contagious than the other versions that there's so much more um, cases among people who are there for other reasons. At one point, the University of Pennsylvania Hospital reported one-third of their admittances had p- positive tests for COVID. Their admittances were not for COVID, but they had COVID as the as admittance test. And it's tests. worse. You're saying it's, this is one of the non-stationarities here. Correct. You're saying it's worse because Omicron was it's so, so much more yeah. Yeah. But Just to let you know, just to build on what Adi said, you, the ratio, and I'm not saying it isn't, for the number of deaths to the number of cases to still be around, I've been saying for two years, it's always been in this 1%, 1.2% range. 
the non-stationarity I was talking about would have to be almost at a four-to-one rate, just to let you know. In other words, the number of let's say you take a thousand deaths. Mm-hmm. Oh, but it is eight. Okay, yeah. well then, yeah. we're, then, yeah, could, then that's explainable. It, it would have to be eight hundred died with COVID, yeah. two hundred not to reverse just the ratio. And, and so gonna, if that's true, then that explains I'm going to throw it. out one more thing. This is something that's very obvious to everyone. We still have a lot of unvaccinated people. And not as many in the upper ranges, like in the age of 65 and over, but it was never 99.7. But we also have a lot less people that haven't had COVID. That's true. So, so, um, but, but still, it's it, there still are people dying of COVID. There's no doubt. This calls to mind the need for using this excess deaths calculation slash estimate mm-hmm. that we've leaned on in the past. And in the end, people will use that as a more convincing That's number. Right. And, and it's, it, unfortunately, it lags. So it'll take right. about eight weeks to 10 weeks before you get it. Right. But we will. And and I looked at some of that recently, and it's really, it is really disparate um, by state and by, by distance. And this is why it's so hard to figure things out. Mm-hmm. Because a place like, say, Maine, they have a, they're having a surge of deaths, but their vaccination rates are nearly 80%. And then you have places that aren't seeing surges with much lower, but they actually had waves of COVID early earlier with therefore more generalized immunity you have differences in age of the population it's very hard to get right well so speaking of geographic disparities we had an interesting email yesterday from a listener david pesci down in chapel hill north carolina says he's been listening for seven years he had a covid related question he wanted to hear about sweden because sweden apparently is an outlier if you look at the number of deaths as a fraction of the population it's 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 a it's a it is a small it is a small fraction of of comparable of some comparable areas, and this is despite the fact that there was never a mask mandate, they didn't mandate vaccines, they had kind of this let it go philosophy from the beginning. So what have we? And I know it's really hard. He even David says this as well. We know that it's hard to compare geographies. We, populations differ on many dimensions, but have we any hypotheses or have we learned anything about the? seemingly unique example of Sweden. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to sort of see, I'd have to see the comparison set, I guess. I mean, if it's a comparison to other Scandinavian countries with similar demographic situations, because in my mind, I I feel like my first order uh, when comparing across different geographies and countries is is, is the age demographics of the population, because obviously age is the one thing we know is strongly predictive of kind of of, of of COVID outcomes, right? So the three things we know about Sweden, first of all, they got absolutely crushed in the very beginning, um, which its Scandinavian neighbors did not. In other words, they didn't handle the nursing home infestation, if you will, as well as other countries. Well, we did terribly in this country, um, but I think Denmark and Norway did a bit better on that score, and so they had that big bump up in the beginning. And that, of course, is uh, leaves you know the the survivors in better in better state than the ones that that's, that that didn't survive. And secondly, it's a very interesting, it's a very different way of of healthcare there. Um, first of all, they didn't have restrictions at all, but many people followed them voluntarily, and they and they and they did their best to just do things in a natural way. They didn't have vaccine mandates, but I'm sure many many people got ma- I'm sure their ma- ma- vaccine uptake was. Uptake was as high as any other country in the world. Um, they didn't do uh, social. There was no official mask policy, but I'm sure many people wore them. They didn't. They didn't close bars, or but people didn't go. Right. Um, so it's hard to know what happened in Sweden on the ground just because they didn't have the the the, the rules because it's a different society than than. And than it's us. got a lower death rate total, like over the entire span of COVID, or just currently well, certainly has than a lower the US, death rate than, than in the U.S. Yeah. Again, so they're, I, I want to compare to like a you know a, a closer country like Denmark. Or Norway or something. By the way, like their that. vaccine rates because them getting slammed in the early would lead to a higher death rate. Well, they do. They don't have as low as, as their neighbors. I know they don't. They're not as low as Denmark and, oh. and, and Norway. 
Yeah, I was just going to say their vaccine rates are the number of people that are fully vaccinated uh, is 74 percent right now in Sweden and compare at least according to the CDC data. And so it's 10 percent higher, by the way, than the United States yeah. of fully vaccinated people in Sweden. But they okay. certainly did worse than their their democratic their <laughs> not democratic uh, their their the other yeah sorry uh, I guess when this was first introduced it sounded like a it, success well, story for Sweden. Well, the comparison but. that David draws is to North Carolina and Georgia, both of which are comparable in population, both of which are obviously U.S. states and quite different demographically. So that's and and in those cases the death rate death rate is a fraction, but. What, and he's saying and despite having pretty extensive lockdowns yeah. and mass mandates, that's but, right. But yeah, but I you mean, guys are suggesting, look, what matters is behavior. It's one thing to follow the policies. It's another thing to follow the actual behavior on the ground. And it could well be that behavior was actually more preventative in Sweden than it was in North Carolina and Georgia. And just again, just to give some more data, in North Carolina, Sweden's fully vaccination rate is 16 percent higher than the state of North Carolina. <laughs> just to give, no, I'm just saying, and maybe that, you know, that can make a huge difference between yeah. high 50s and mid 70s in terms yeah. of the vaccination rate. So no, that's I, just I, I think I, I'd probably list, again, differences in age demographics and way better healthcare system as probably more than the behavior stuff. And, but also, and also potentially very different counting system. One of the things that this is, this has shocked me when I read this about Sweden. Um, if you, and other Scandinavian countries, if you're in a nursing home over a certain age, they have no, uh, they make no extraordinary efforts to, to keep you alive. What age? <laughs> uh, it's like 80. It's, I'm telling you, it's amazing. Um, they just don't remove you. They just don't. There, there's no culture of well, do whatever it takes, like we have in the United Do you States. have a value judgment on that? Um, not necessarily positive or uh, negative. Um, I'm, you know, actually, probably might be as, at least as positive I, as negative. Uh, yeah, I have, I have I have reasons to not like it and reasons to like it. I, I haven't really thought deeply about it. Well, the U.S. Um, famously spends an inordinate right. amount of resources keeping people mm-hmm. alive at the end of their lives. That's yeah. right. Yes. No, and I mean, I've I, I've got mixed feelings on that. I mean, again, you know. Like a 90-year-old getting like a hip replacement or something like that, I think, is not, you know, necessarily the greatest saving, you, you know, or I, I do think we sort of probably pile on expenses a little bit more than we have to Listen, late in life. We but. do that. I mean, my mother was, was practically twist, arm twisted to have surgery at the, in the last days of her life. My mom's yeah. like, that's ridiculous. And, and But she was ironclad her entire life to do right. nothing of yeah. the kind. Um, but we do that in this country. Uh-huh. And Sweden does not. Interesting. Interesting. All right, guys. Well, let's wrap the COVID discussion there for this week. We'll come back to it again next week. Of course, that's the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM, rolling into the second quarter now, brought into the second quarter by Dion Simpkins. We are in studio today, first time in about a month, only the second or third time in the last two years. Delighted to be here. The whole crew is here. Audie Weiner, straight away, Shane Jensen to my right, Eric Bradley to my left. This is Cade Massey. Rolling into an open topics quarter. You guys can join us in a way, if you'd like, you can... Reach out on Twitter, probably the easiest way, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. 
Send us questions, send us suggestions, send us complaints, whatever you got, reach out. You can also just follow us. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics up there at W Moneyball. You can also send us email. Our mailbag is an email address. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything we get. We love hearing from you. We get as much of it as we can onto the air, like the note from David Pesci that we just covered in Q1. All right, gentlemen, a lot of news today. Two massive NFL stories today. Rodgers signed the contract that we were told he'd been contemplating for a few days. Big four-year deal. He denies it, by the way. Yeah. He denies, he, he denies signing oh, an he extension. He says he is going to be with Green Bay next but season, but I guess they've signing ironed the contract. Oh. They haven't ironed it out completely yet. But. So somebody jumped the gun. Interesting. Well, right on the heels of that. Is Tom we, Brady coming back? I mean, Russell Wilson. It's oh, not yeah. Tom no, Brady, Russell Wilson. but it's Russell so Wilson. So I wanted to talk to you, Wait Kate. till the playoffs for Tom Brady I wanted Brady to talk to you about the Russell Wilson <laughs> deal, given how much work that you've done, you did early on and throughout your career on the draft. So whether... Russell Wilson is better than Drew Locke. I think there's no dispute. He's better than Drew Locke. We know that. Although Drew Locke could have some upside potential. Noah Fant, they also got. Not a bad player at all. They got Shelby Harris, who I don't know well, but a reasonable lineman is my understanding. But here's the part that I want to ask you how much value it is. Two number ones, two number twos, and a five. So they got Drew Locke, Noah Fant, who are both NFL players. Now we could debate whether Drew Locke will ever be a starter again. Shelby Harris, who is a starter, two ones, two twos, and a five. That seems like a huge amount. How far out are the ones and twos? It's a good question. I will look while we're speaking. I don't know if they're five years away or they're next year. Well, they're it, can't be, it, can't, it can't be more than three years away, right? I don't know. I think rule, there's a rule. There's, there's a, rule. a rule. You can't do Man, more than NBA, like three years you could ask for people's future children. I mean, there are there. there are I no mean, pe- honestly, honestly, no offense. Uh, like, I, I feel the two number ones and two number twos are the most valuable part of that deal. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> no offense to Drew. Locke. No, no, you know, no offense to Drew Locke. That's a reasonable no offense, even. You know, I mean, like, you know, it, it, it's sort of like. I, I guess the question is sort of like, given that the quarterback is by far the most important position. Yep. Um. What are the chances that Denver would have turned any of those number ones or number twos that they traded away into a quarterback as good as Russell Wilson? Is there a period, track of time, in a period of time that's short enough where they could capitalize on what's in, seen as a very good defense? You know, they've been trying to come up with a good. They've been trying to draft in the first or second round quarterbacks for the last like almost decade now and have been epic failing on it so maybe that's an acknowledgement that they i I was just going to say the betting market at least has spoken yeah so the broncos moved from 25 to 1 to win the super bowl to 12 to 1 which is you know four percent to a little over eight percent so doubled and seattle fell from 40 to 1 to 75 to 1 Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. at least the market has spoken that you know, I don't think we'd agree. A doubling of your probability is pretty good. But I like the way you framed it. I hadn't thought about it that way. What's the chances that between... Let's say you drafted only quarterbacks with those well, ones but, and twos. But, but Eric, could you ever get somebody as good as Russell yeah. Wilson? But Eric, there's actually two different probabilities there. Are you going to have access to one a quarterback in the draft? 
and right. then conditional on taking one, will he turn out to be what you want him to be? And we usually focus on the second of those, but the first is a very real hurdle. There are lots of teams who want to draft quarterbacks who can't draft quarterbacks. Anybody who wants to draft a quarterback this year, for example, can get one. No, well, yes, but they don't want the ones no, in the draft. I understand that, yeah. but like they this, could get one. This is just by chance. I mean, you know, the, the Colts, who were touched by God in some way because they happened to be drafted number one when both Peyton Manning and then Andrew Luck come out, right. which is just absurd. Look at poor, who's drafting first this year? The Jags or something? The Jaguars. Well, they have Trevor Lawrence. Well, f- forget who they have now. If they wanted a quarterback. No, they'd be screwed. And what if they were, I mean, who's drafting second? Who's drafting third? No, there but are, there are years where you take quarterbacks the first five picks. No, but your point is a good one, which is also that Denver is not stupid. They can do that calculation yeah. and say, yeah, we're giving up these picks, but, you know, at the end of the day, those picks aren't going to yield us, you know, they're not going to yield us a quarterback that we would want that we think, in fact, they might be doing, none of those quarterbacks could be better than and Drew Locke. I, I feel like there's a two, there's a possible. There's almost he's like not a, horrible. I actually like Drew Locke. I, I mean, I, I do. I, I guess horrible's kind, of, okay, horrible's, kind, horrible's kind of a mean word to use, but we all agree Drew Locke is in the bottom 25% of starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Yes. Okay. So I mean, I, I but think he has the potential to be in the next quartile up. <laughs> the be- maybe <laughs> the benefit of, I think of Denver's move here is almost twofold because they're not a, they are an example of a, a a good team that would be is going to be I think very good with decent quarterbacking, right? And so they're already at that cusp where a quarterback does take them to the next yeah, level of competitiveness, right. and being already at that cusp also lowers their chances of being able to draft a good quarterback because, yeah, as we've been pointing That's out, right. really to get those really right. those good quarterbacks, you have, be to worth tank. Less. Those you have to Those draft picks will be worth less. Yeah, exactly. Is or, there or, any or, chance? For a quarterback, anyway. Is there any chance? I guess not really Russell Wilson, but, I mean, he's not young anymore. Mm-hmm. I understand quarterbacks yeah. last longer, but is there any chance that Russell Wilson is on the downside of his career? I mean, it's almost certain given how great he was, but... He's. I don't, I'm going to guess he's, he's 30, 32. 32. Yeah. Okay. He's 32. So he'll turn 33 next season. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we can't all be Tom Brady. We can't all be Aaron Rodgers, yeah. who's winning MVPs at age 38, and Brady, who won five super four Super Bowls after the age of 35. Does Russell Wilson have two or three more good years left in him? Well, I, th- I think two. Or, I mean, I think realistically, they they probably are making this trade thinking that. Three-year um, time horizon. Three, three or four years. I mean, probably they're hoping four, five, six, you know, but I think three or four. But well, let's that, also that's... remember a Russell Wilson's style of play is very different than a Tom Brady's or an Aaron Rodgers. Russell he, he requires taken a, a little more mobility. A lot more. And so that's just... He does, but just because he's mobile, he doesn't... I mean, he, he, especially early in his career, he was famous for not taking hits. That's I true. Mean, he, he, would, he would move, he would run even, but he was good at not taking those hits. Now, he takes a lot of sacks, Um We've come to appreciate that quarterback sacks are a quarterback stat, and he's almost the example we give for guys who are risk tolerant. They want to stick in there, and and, and they'll take the risk of a sack in order to get a longer shot. But an open question is how any of this changes when he's with a different system. Right. And I think think it's one of the most intriguing questions of next season because it's been so frustrating to watch him in Pete Carroll's organization. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I feel for the Seahawks fans, but I'm thrilled for Russell Wilson that he gets out from under that. And I'm really curious. I mean, Broncos are famously a quarterback forward organization, and they, they, they pride themselves on this. And let's see what they can do 
with but of course, a real nothing stops. Nothing stops. Well, Seattle wasn't horrible last year. There's nothing that stops Seattle potentially. Maybe Seattle signs Jimmy G. I'm not saying Jimmy G's the greatest quarterback ever, but maybe Seattle. I mean, he did. Lead, he did go to a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. He's gone to an NFC Championship game. Seattle might be a perfect system under uh, Pete Carroll. Sign Jimmy G. You've now got a massive number of draft picks. Maybe you know who they should get. I just, we just saw a tweet this week okay. from our friend. Uh, former guest sage rosenfeld yeah sure and he's and, and he's famous for this 14 play drive for the giants which sealed the play a playoff game i think but he did it without throwing a pass 14 handoffs in a row that sounds like a pete curl quarterback to me maybe he can get sage rosenfeld to come out of retirement, retirement yeah, yeah and just hand off the ball well, could be could be yeah i mean really i i guess i don't know seattle's team quite well enough to say like whether they kind of are envisioning a kind of a rebuild over the next few years like do they have enough kind of talent there where it's worth kind of going out um, and grabbing, like, a current good free agent quarterback. Or, you know, do they grab somebody, either draft somebody, though the draft's not looking so good this year, or Jordan Love is probably available now. Like, maybe getting some kind of, like, you know, younger quarterback um, that they can kind of see if – we'll spend the next couple of years seeing what they got. Just so you know, both Seattle and Denver were 7-10 and last year. And I'm looking at the plus-minus differential. It was almost identical. I mean, so, I think De- Denver's... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested. What did Massey Peabody have Seattle and Denver at at the end of last year? My guess is not that different. So you're saying because Seattle did it with a good quarterback and Denver did it with a bad quarterback, this Denver's was a, a better team. Denver's, Denver's a, a much better team, team and they will do yep. much better with the new... Our balance, are you basically saying that both teams did okay? I just think I think Denver the, gave up a little too much for my taste. That seems like a lot of draft, a lot picks. of draft because those four or five guys could all end up being starters. Well, you right? know, one of the things that I always wondered about, maybe Kate, you know the answer. How many, how much of a team, uh, a good team's core is made up of essentially young or recent draft picks? Forget the quarterback, but outside of the quarterback, how much of your core team is? Couple within one to four well, years. We have out one of your base draft. rate number. The median, two and a half. Yeah, yeah, the median NFL. But I'm talking about the yeah, people who are your team. Yeah, that's going to be. Yeah, you know, that's that's, that's going to lead to a very bad intuition for who's on the team because you're churning these young. Guys. You know, I know like no, offensive I'm, linemen. They're there for a long time. Yeah, my intuition is that the core are on their second contract. They're on their second contract. I mean, I don't know. That's a great question, but I, w- I would put the core on the second. Because contract. the real question is how much are you giving up. I mean, you're, you you got to have a team, and it's got to be a good one. It can't just be the quarterback. And how many of those five picks? contribute to mm-hmm. that team. No, but I like the way you framed it a lot, which is Denver must have a better team because they had the same record with a yep. bad quarterback. Yeah. They also, though, I mean, that division is such a gauntlet now. Which one? Uh, that Denver's in. Oh, the Denver. Denver's now with Kansas City's obviously in there. And Oh, so what's their ELO, and, right? You can't just you check have, their... You got uh, Herbert Mahomes yeah. and Wilson all in the same division. Derek Carr, I mean, he's no slouch either. No. I mean, he's the worst quarterback in that division, he'd probably be and he's like still the median in the second NFL. or third best quarterback in in most of the divisions in football. Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, it also kind of means like yet another amazing quarterback has moved over to the AFC. I feel like the AFC in general is a real kind of like I I almost feel like we've got like you know kind of a decreasing of kind of parity between the NFC and the AFC with all this. I mean, Rodgers is sticking around, but who else besides Rodgers now is a really good quarterback? In the NFC, and again, I'm, I'm I'm being reductive by reducing it to just the to quarterbacks, quarterbacks, right? But I mean, do you, you want to call Stafford? Yeah, I do. He just won the Super Bowl, so yeah, worth including him certainly. Uh, 
I can't think of anybody else. I mean, Dak Prescott, I guess, would be the next one. Yeah, but uh, you're right. There's a lot more. I, there's a lot more strength in the AFC. Yeah. Gentlemen, let's talk about some other sports. We've got a pretty short little quarter in here. What in the other sports are you most excited about? You said you had a baseball question, Shane. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it kind of just occurred to me as I was sort of thinking, like, I've been kind of tracking sort of the various things that have been going on with these uh, CBA negotiations and the various rule changes that could happen or not, like, you know, banning shifting or like, you know. Banning bunting. Banning, you know, whatever. <laughs> no. And it, it, it's sort of like, the one of the ones I kind of support, at least kind of in theory, is things like a pitching clock, right? Because speeding up the game is certainly think, something that baseball should do. For sure. But... I was kind of thinking about it. like if if the pitcher's on an actual clock and has to stick to it, aren't uh, we going to get a ton more stolen bases? Yeah, I, because actually, the runners will know when the pitcher's actually got <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, damn right. Uh, my general view is that a pitch clock is not the that is enforced on every pitch is the wrong move, and the right move is an average, and so enforce the average, give you the opportunity to take extra time when you need it. And as long as you catch up with it when you when you don't need it, so the, right now the average time between pitches is like twenty four seconds or some ridiculous amount. Double Could you what just it was. have it that the? I mean, maybe this is not right. I hadn't thought about that deeply. If you're a batter, you can't leave the batter's box. That already if you're a pitcher, is the rule. You can't leave the rubber, but they do. They don't enforce uh, it exactly. Well, there's so, no enforcement. But, yeah, no, but mean, if you I did those two, wouldn't that issue. save time? Yeah, there's also. I mean, there's a, the umpire can has the, has the power to declare a, a strike, and if the batter doesn't come back and and. Uh, I declare it. I mean, if the if the pitcher takes too long, it can ward a ball. I mean, they've got power to do all that. It's a question of enforcement. But I don't believe, and I think you're absolutely right, Shane. That you can't have the pitcher's got to be able to have a little flexibility. Yeah, I mean, I guess you, I guess the whole. I you know, uh, I, yeah, I just, I, I I guess they all will have the flex. I guess the ra- the counter argument to me would so be, I, well, if the pitcher doesn't want the guy to steal on him, he better yeah. throw well before the clock well, let's runs just continue out, with but. baseball just for a second. So, given that we're likely to have a shorter season than one sixty two, maybe considerably shorter, how do we think this is going to affect? Like, how would, would you just? Would you still predict the same teams, or would you add some more uncertainty because of the shorter season? Well, I would predict the same teams, but I would lower their probabilities because I'd spread it out. Yeah. It's the only way to do it, right? I mean, I don't think I'd appreciatively change. Like, if, well, if it really is just dropping from 162 down to, like, no, but, 150 let me, or something I, I, like what, that, what I don't you're think. Saying, well, that's not What you're saying sounds right, but let me, let me throw a counter to where I could better a perverse situation where that's not true. Imagine you have a team that, let's, let's take the, in the limit. Suppose there was only a 10-game season, and you had a team that had three or four really good starters that never had to pitch a bad starter, but we're not going to pick them over 162 because they have to pitch two bad starters. So there is, I was, I was saying, is there a situation where by lowering the games, you would actually reverse things and pick a team that was lower than over a team that was higher? And the answer is yes. It's very perverse. It would have to be <laughs> in a small number of games, but that's why I was just trying to think, is what you're saying, could it be false? That you would never reverse the Eric ordering likes, of teams. Yeah. Eric likes the perverse example. I mean, you know, <laughs> no, I like thinking of things in the limit because it yeah, provides it's, it's, good no, intuition. It it's a good way to think well, about it. Well, I don't know if we have time, but I do have a baseball puzzle that I would like to try on my colleagues if there's time now. You want to you hear it? This is. Uh, we may pose it now. We I'll, may talk about it, it later. All right, so the question is if you have, imagine you have a pitcher who has a zero chance of getting on base, they're a, a certain out. Where would you rather that pitcher come up if you could control it? Leading off every inning or. Always coming up at with their two outs it's a, at a randomly chosen two out time proportional to how they to the base states that they occur. What would be your intuition on which is worser for the team to have occur? Clear them out on the first. I mean, honestly, 
let me just say, all right, my preference is the one that Major League Baseball has thankfully chosen, which is just not to have to watch them come up to bat. <laughs> that's the actual solution. That's the Martian solution, too, by the that's way. That's the yeah. actual solution. But... Um, so what would be the solution for one. all of the previous years in the National League before this? Yeah, I, I, I would say... You would say number one? Clear them out first. I, my intuition is the opposite. My intuition yeah. is having the person come up last or be the last well, out. Any, any time. Honestly, no, it's not, as long as there's two outs, so they could come up with bases loaded, come up with bases empty, yeah. whatever their yeah. proportions last. are. Last. I want last as well. Okay. I, think the ch- I don't have a strong... I don't have the answer yet because we're going to run the simulation and check it out, but my intuition is, is uh, have them come up last because... Uh, coming up, starting an inning with one out, which is essentially yeah, what you're doing, right. is That's terrible. Right. Though it's, again, you know, it's... But you, do, I, yeah, it, I, you I can't come up with runners psych- on base. That's the problem. Yeah, psychologically, yeah. I feel like the pitcher oh, pe- coming up when there's men on base... People are going to remember that one. Yeah, ...out of so. an entire <laughs> inning. <laughs> yeah, so. that's right. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, fellas. Golf, golf, golf. Uh, an interesting stat out of the PGA today. For the first time in the history of the world golf rankings, all five of the top five or below 30. Scotty Scheffler, Longhorn alum, won his second tournament of the year, and he bumped uh, Rory out of number Well, let me five just spot. comment quickly about Scheffler. You want to talk about things coming in streaks or clumps? I, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, the yeah, guy yeah. hadn't won in 70 tournaments. He played 70 tournaments on the PJ Tour, so, over on, 70. Is that, is that a, hold on, that's not, it can't be a big number. That's like two seasons worth or something. Mm, he's 25, so I think this is his third or fourth season on tour. No, I'm not commenting. I'm just saying, he played 70 tournaments, fact. had okay. one. Yep. Okay. He had some he, unusual he, number of top 10s. That though, was the thing that was unusual. A large number one. of top 10s okay. for not winning. He okay. then won. He's now won two out of the last three tournaments he's played. Yeah. He's on a hot streak. Well, that's you know I believe that. You know I believe well, maybe that. We'll talk about sure. that he's making his trivia last no, no, interesting but I by think, balancing I think Shane, it out, you by pointed the way. out the right thing. It was the number of top tens he had without winning that yeah. was extraordinary. And now most people are like, this guy's going to start winning all kinds of tournaments, yeah. left and right. So there's two things going on. One, we do know that there is more momentum in, in golf than, than some other sports. Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of sports don't show a lot of momentum, but golf, when you talk to the sports bettors who are modeling this stuff, they do very much consider recent performance in order to predict better. Um, but the other thing you're talking about is some kind of maybe psychological thing. Correct. Like nobody can break a four-minute mile until all of a sudden somebody breaks a four-minute mile that everyone's like, oh, we can break a four-minute mile. So – is that what you're suggesting with Sheffler? Like, I'm he suggesting had to, he both. Had to win. I'm suggesting both because, look, at the end of the day, your golf swing does have a mechanical yeah. nature to it. It can get out of you know sync or whack or whatever, however you want to call it. He's obviously, in the last month, been in a zone where his mechanics are working properly. So, Eric, why, this is the nature of the question you posed, I think. It's like, what other sports or right. positions have something close to that, if that's the mechanism. So one I thought about was pitchers, because pitchers initiate the action in right. the same way that a golfer initiates the action. And they're they're relatively independent of other players. Do we see, mo- and Adi, this is close to some stuff you've looked at before, to what extent do we see momentum or non-stationarity or regime shifts in pitchers in the way that we do with golfers? Well, you see, pitchers are, are the most obvious ca- uh, um, a professional category that varies from game to game. And you measure that and can see it in miles per hour and break of the pitch. So I'm exactly wrong. 
So they I'm, vary. I'm exactly wrong. The, yes, and uh, and and it's it's a stunning thing. It probably has to has to do with arms, which are so extremely I just fragile. Sure, I just want to make sure about Kate's questions. You're saying yeah. if we just did let's however you want to measure performance, whether it's win loss, but that's a noisy measure, or if we did a runs test, a statistical runs test for pitchers, we would reject the fact that pitchers go on runs, go on streaks. Eric, say one more word about runs. Oh, that they don't run. go on streaks. No, no, I think they do. I think they do too. Well, that's what Cade was saying. So, yeah. I, I, were, pit, I, no, no, pitchers do go on. They're, 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 it's not that they're streaky. They are highly variable from run to run. That they can have a series of ten in a row where they're variable, and they are. In other words, they can show a lot of variability that's much more than the binomial you get oh. uh, in, in a single How game. How did I hear him so wrong? Yeah, that's you heard why, exactly correct. That's why you I was it. saying what I was yes, saying. You heard it Thank exactly you for the, the clarification. I heard yeah. the way you heard it, though. So, yeah. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and the way we talk about it is in, in statistics is variance components. So we'd ask, what is the when you look at the at the game and look at the pitchers, you look at inter-pitcher variability and then intra-pitcher variability. And we can model the intra within a game because it's a binomial. Every every time there's an at-bat, it's like a Bernoulli coin toss. So you can see how much you'd expect to see naturally. And what you see with pitchers, ex- with the with the exceptions like Max Scherzer, who, who are great, and other pitchers who are DeGrom, horrible every yeah, time, they, they are good all the time. But most pitchers have an enormous amount of variance. Mm-hmm. And what the interesting question, in fact, Eric and I are actually working on research with this project as we speak with one of our students, is how much of the game do you have to see before you know which version you got? Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. But but let me just make sure I understand. You're saying the pitcher's performance last start is predictive of oh, his I, performance I, 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 That I don't know the answer to because I haven't actually looked at that. But I do know that the pitchers are much more – they change less within a game than they change across games. Okay, so yeah. maybe we're all still yeah. talking about slate yeah. I still <laughs> believe there is state dependence and cross-game autocorrelation yeah, in performance. Yeah, autocorrelation. That's, that's what I think it comes to. That's, not, that's a question that I don't know the answer to. Okay. Okay. Well, it's an interesting question of where in sports that exists, and especially because Eric was hypothesizing mechanisms for why it exists go in golf. Go Scotty, go. But I'm with you. And yes, go Scotty Scheffler. He's one of the favorites. Well, he's about fifth or sixth favorite for TPC. That has been two quarters of the of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. As we've mentioned, we're coming to you from the studio, the SiriusXM studio, the business radio studio. And so we were brought back online by by our associate producer, Dion Simpkins. We get that music real time. It's better, Dion, that way it's better. Zoom doesn't give us that lead-in music. Appreciate it. As you guys know, Q4 has become our interview segment in pandemic time, and we are delighted to welcome onto the show this week for the very first time, Nate Duncan. Nate is the host of Dunked on Basketball podcast, Dunked on Basketball podcast. He's also the host of the NBA cast on the NBA leagues, the NBA's League Pass. Nate was a lawyer up until some kind of epiphany we're going to hear about shortly. Nate, delighted to have you on the show. Welcome. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Nate, tell us where you're calling in from today. I'm calling in from sunny Berkeley, California. Oh, my goodness. All right. Other, it's, you know, we used to do these shows in the morning, and we had great sympathy for our West Coast guest. I mean, sympathy 
in, in extreme. So this is a little more comfortable for you. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do these days. We appreciate your jumping in. How is it you've ended up in Berkeley? How do you, what part of your life led you there? We're fond of it. Yeah, I've been here for the last 15 years or so. Just uh, went to law school at University of Arizona. Uh, grew up in Chicago before that, but I was not a fan of the weather. So decided to go somewhere warm and then got a job out of law school at a law firm in Walnut Creek, California, which is a suburb in the Bay Area. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, listen, we want to hear about how a lawyer turns into the host of the NBA's League Pass NBA cast. How, how does that happen? What, what was your transition from a traditional career in law to a somewhat unconventional career in NBA journalism? Well, it's kind of funny, actually. Uh, up until I was about 30, I thought, all right, you know, I'm just going to work at this law firm. I'll have a conventional path. And I had been dating a woman that I, I met in law school, and I assumed that you know, she was going to move to California with me, and we we're going to get married. And that didn't work out. And so at about age 30, I was like, man, you know, I don't really have much going on in my life. Like, I need to establish some hobbies, and I always – love basketball and so i was like all right i'm gonna just start doing some writing here as a lark and so uh, in i started a blog called the team rebound in january of 2012 and just started going to a few events and meeting some people in the industry both with teams and also in on the media side and ended up getting credentialed and then decided to start my own podcast in 2015 and that took off to the point where i felt comfortable leaving the law firm to try and work on that instead mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well you know we've got a few there are a few examples here and there of people doing that and you're gonna you're gonna shine as an example inspiring another generation of people i'm sure which is good fun um tell us what offerings you have around the world of nba journalism we, let's just tell our followers our listeners you can you can follow nate on twitter anyway you can get at nate duncan nba at nate duncan nba great follow for all matters basketball and he's doing okay he's got a hundred thousand followers so he's got something he's got a few things going on but nate tell us about as we know social social media following is basically the entire measure of your self-worth yeah right right. exactly exactly (laughs) so to those of us you know with fewer followers you look like a god and then you of course are paying attention to those with a million followers feeling bad every day it's just a bad situation but nate is clearly doing okay (laughs) nate tell us what the offerings are you've got a number of different things that happen at different times in the week if people want to get involved with what you're doing where can they find you yeah, so obviously that Twitter account, we promote everything on there. But the main thing that we do that's been the main offering since started in 2015 is that Dunktown podcast. It's a five-day-a-week basketball podcast. It comes out usually in the evenings after the games are, are over, so it's there for you on the East Coast. You want to find out what happened in the NBA last night You know, during the playoffs. We basically hit on every single thing that happens in the NBA, whether it's transactions, uh, my partner, Dane Lure and I are big NBA salary cap nerds. We focus on that a lot. We focus on gameplay. We focus on the draft, basically everything that's going on in the league. 
the goal is you listen to this show five days a week and you know everything that's going on in the league and hopefully getting some good analysis on it. So that's that's the main thing uh, that we have going on. Nate, let, let me stop you there. Let me stop you there real quick. Let me stop you there real quick. So yeah. how how long is the is the nightly podcast? It's usually an hour. Okay. Uh, sometimes even longer than that. Give us a flavor. So, what what did you have to say last night? If we'd have listened, if we'd have stayed up and listened, or if we'd have cranked it up when we got up this morning, what were some of the talking points out of your show last night? Just to give us a flavor of it. Yeah, so actually we just recorded, just came out today, uh, the five best moves that were made by teams this year. So we talked about the DeMar DeRozan sign and trade to Chicago and how mm-hmm. that's revolutionized their team. We talked about the Ben Simmons Harden trade uh, as well as some of the signings that happened last summer. So we talked about that and then just caught up on some of the news and analysis. So that was today's pod. Got it. Got it. Rook, let's do the Bulls real quick. So catch catch us up. I'm, we're some of us fly more blind than others. Eric, for example, sitting here making fun of me because I don't know these things. But look, I I quit paying attention to the Bulls a few years ago when I realized they didn't know what they were doing. So and then I turn around and all of a sudden they've got a decent club going on. So has, do we have insight into what's happened in their front office? Are these lucky moves or have they restructured sufficiently to be smarter than they used to be? They definitely did restructure in their front office, uh, they brought in Arturis Karnishevis, uh, who is an executive with the Denver Nuggets. They brought in Mark Eversley to be his right-hand man. And they, this is really the first time that they brought in GM uh, or an executive president of basketball operations to run the team who did not have kind of bulls nepotistic ties right. in his past. <laughs> bulls slash so, nepotistic. Perfect. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they've, and it was interesting because the initial thought was, oh, this guy's a scouting background with Denver. They built from the ground up. They had all these great scouting finds, Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic and Yusuf Nurkic. And so instead, they did have the draft, but they went a different approach. They made a trade for Nikola Vucevic. They made another signing trade for DeMar DeRozan. They really went more towards contending right away. And I thought that they had pushed in their chips too early, that they weren't going to be that good. And in fact, DeMar DeRozan has been one of the 10 best players in the league Mm -hmm. this year. Vucevic has, after a slow start, has given them a nice season. They also signed Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso, who are two great defensive guards that have really helped them. And so they've completely revolutionized their team into maybe if not a contender one of the better teams in the eastern conferences mm-hmm. so nate this is eric bradlow actually it's a perfect segue to my question um i believe they are one of the better teams in the eastern conference but probably not the best team in the eastern conference and sitting since we're sitting here in the city of brotherly love and we trusted the process all right, <laughs> if you were a bulls fan wouldn't you be concerned that they're going to be yeah, they're going to be a good team for the next 3 or 4 years but they're never going to win the title cuz they don't have elite talent they have very good talent and that in some sense now they don't really have as much opportunity to rebuild because they're not going to get the top talent is that misguided or how do you see things I thought that was the case early on but I think they've done enough here to be relevant that you know maybe they will never get in a championship contention well there's 30 teams right I mean I think if they win, you know, the equivalent of high 40s, 50 wins for a few years. Is that to say that it wasn't worth it to do this? Would their fans have rather them 
be kind of mired in the muck. I mean, you're getting, you mentioned Phil, I mean, you're getting into almost these existential questions of what it means to own an NBA team or be a fan of a team. You know, would you rather a team win a championship 10 years from now, but be terrible most of the time until then? Or would you rather a team be good, you know, be the four seed in the East for four, five, six years, winning 50 games, but maybe they don't ever win a championship. You know, what, what is better for you as a fan? I mean, and obviously, you know, you're not guaranteed to win that championship at the end of the, the time of suffering as well. So I think <laughs> if you're talking about just being stuck chasing the eighth seed or the seventh seed, no chance of winning a playoff series at all, I would agree. I think you should try to continue the rebuild until you have a core in place that realistically could be, you know, getting home court advantage in a playoff series, winning a playoff series. I think once you've reached that point though, that that is a worthy goal and that you're not like, Oh man, like we should only be picking or trying to get a team that could be the championship favorite or bust. And if we can't do that, then we should just be terrible until we feel like we have, you know, five future superstars on our team that we got in the draft. I, I certainly agree with you, Nate, that there's a uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the NBA, and especially in the East this year with, I don't know, five or six teams within two or three games in the loss column. And certainly I would agree with you that their chances in the East are not much worse than even the favorites, and why not the Bulls? I mean, it could be the Bulls, or it could be any of five or six other teams, and uh, I think you're right. If they give themselves an opportunity for the next three or four years, maybe the luck and the coin flips and the balls bounce their way and they end up in the finals. Yeah, uh, one of my quotes that I talk about a lot in team building is from The Wire. There's a character named Clay Davis who said, crawl, walk, run, basically, as far as uh, he was talking about corruption in Baltimore. But it's it's apt maybe for team building as well, that mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you have a big market team, mm-hmm. that you need to at least be competent first and that then you can then – build on that you get more players who want to go there like Lonzo Ball and Caruso and DeRozan this season and that now maybe Chicago could be in the mix for the next disgruntled mm-hmm. superstar mm-hmm. who's looking to make a move but you know if you're just winning 25 games a year you're never going to be in the mix to get that kind of player and I think the other thing too is you can talk about potentially uh, continuing the rebuild, you know, they had Zach Levine, who's a, an all-star player. And if they didn't improve this year, he was potentially going to walk at the end of this year as a free agent. So they had that pressure as well. So I, I think this might have been a better way for a team like the Bulls because the path not traveled would have been, okay, Zach Levine leaves. Now we've got three or four more years of pain. The new lottery odds, even if you're really bad, you can't be sure of being in the top four every year. And so I think that this path is probably the better one for them, even though I will freely admit that this offseason I didn't see it that way. Nate, um, actually this whole discussion has got me kind of thinking. I, I don't follow basketball and the NBA nearly as much as some, but it seems to me that we're kind of entering at least this year maybe an era uh, where there's a little bit more parity. Uh it's certainly parity between the East and the West, at least compared to, I think, what what I've been kind of mostly watching for the past 20 years or so. Would you agree with that? Is it, Do you kind of sort of sense a greater shifting of balance of power from West to East, or do you just think there's a greater level of sort of parity right now compared to what we were dealing with, the, you know, the Lakers and Golden State and, you know, super teams? 
I wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, I wouldn't give any one team greater than a 25% chance of winning the championship as we sit here today. And so I agree with you that that's the case. I mean, there isn't that obvious super team out there with three stars. We'd kind of grown used to that with first it was the heat. And then it, it was Kevin Durant joining the Warriors and where you had this overwhelming favorite going into the year. Now worth noting, even in those years, those teams didn't win the championship every year. You can have injuries. You can have guys, fall off you can have teams come out of nowhere but i do agree that there is a lot more parity this year than there has been in the past an interesting question is why is that um you know i think one of the big reasons is that we haven't seen now teams after 2019 that might be the last crazy big free agency year that we see for a long time now it seems like most teams uh, or most good players are moving teams via trade before they get to free agency. Mm. And then the other thing I think we can point to too is you don't have, you know, it's not LeBron James is obviously the best player, right? Like I think you would get, you might get five different answers if you ask five different people who the best player is. So if there isn't one best player who's giving his team the best chance to win, and that's another reason why we might have parity, you know, your top five, six, seven players in the NBA, I think those guys are all closer to one another than they might have been in the past. So, Nate, this is Eric again. It's a perfect segue to the last point you made. Um, Are we seeing, I've been one of these, since I grew up a New York Knicks fan in the 1980s, obviously Patrick Ewing was our best player and never quite got it done for the Knicks. Um, But I've always been concerned about teams that build around a big man in the NBA today. But you see in the NBA, certainly of the top five MVP uh, potentials, Jokic, Antetokounmpo, and Embiid would have to be in anybody's list of top five. Do you think we're seeing a resurgence of big man in the NBA today, and do you think that'll continue? Yeah, well, I I would say those guys would have to be in anybody's list of the top three, personally. (laughs) All right, so I was was generously saying top five, because maybe I was going to put DeRozan in there now, but it's okay. No, I mean, those those three guys have been unbelievable, but... uh, you know, I wouldn't consider Giannis as much of a big man because you can put the ball in his hands from outside the arc, let him face up and attack off the dribble. He brings the ball up. It's a fascinating question. And the demise of the big man, I think in part, occurred just because there weren't any big men. It wasn't that you couldn't be a good player as a big man. It was just, hey, you know, you've got like DeAndre Jordan as your third team All-NBA center or Marc Gasol, who's a good player, but was never a top 15 player. You're making all NBA at center. And then you could throw Carl Anthony Towns in this mix too. You've gotten Jokic and Towns and Embiid and whether you want to put Giannis in that category or not, uh, those guys are just so skilled and so good that in the regular season, they are able to dominate. And those guys are some of the best players in the regular season. My question is when it gets to to the playoffs, when you need, maybe more defensive versatility than those guys have shown. Like if you look at what happened to Nikola Jokic in the Phoenix series last year, for example, where they just ran pick and roll at him every time and they swept him in part because of his defensive deficiencies. Um, Is it easier to prevent those guys from getting the ball in the playoffs when you're really locked in? I don't think we know the answers to those questions yet, but clearly there is a big man renaissance that's happening. It's just, can you ultimately win a championship with those guys as your best player? I think it's going to be an interesting test again 
this year to find that out if Ronan can stay healthy. It's one of Eric's favorite theories. It's fun uh, to see it evolve over time. He's fleshing it out over time. Hey, quick aside on Bigman. Do you have a position on Chet Holmgren coming out of Gonzaga? You may not. You, you didn't know I, you were yeah. going to ask you a college basketball question, but it's this interesting kid who's seven foot tall but skinny as a rail, and there's a lot of controversy over, over whether he'll make it uh, in the NBA and because he might be the number one pick. Just on, on this topic, do you happen to have an opinion? You're out west. You get to see Yeah, he plays, you know, USF. He played him last night. Uh, I cannot say that I do, and that's just because during the, the regular season, there's so much NBA action. I focus on that. I'll usually do a scouting report on the top 10 or so draft prospects after the season is over. Yep. But I actually have time, and there aren't, you know, 10 NBA games a day that I have to be following. So yeah, right. I can't give you much on home ground. I've seen them a little bit at the lower levels, but I okay. don't want to weigh in on, on him quite Hey, yet. look, we, we admire and, and we espouse saying I don't know more often than people say. So we really appreciate the, the occasional <laughs> I don't know. Um, listen, back to DeRozan. Let's use him as an example of a, another question that is kind of a perennial one. What what about the Bulls roster and or the way they're deployed by the by the coaches or what about the organization makes him any more or less valuable on that roster than he would be somewhere else and i guess the general question Ah, here is is like context you know because we tend to think these guys are just little automatons you can drop them in they're going to do their thing but we know that players are influenced by their teammates and their surroundings and basketball is kind of an interesting case because, you know, the best players make a big difference. But there are these interactions and nonlinearities. I don't think they're very well understood. Um, so I'm curious, your position, since we're, since we're using the Bulls as kind of a test case on everything right now, what's your position on how this DeRozan-Bulls thing is going so well? Yeah, you picked a great example here on the question of fit in the NBA. I'll start by saying that DeRozan is – having his best season as a mid-range shooter. He's been around 50% or more uh, from mid-range, which you know, I don't think that there's something about him being on the Bulls that's suddenly enabling mm-hmm. him to make more contested mid-range jumpers mm-hmm. than he did in the past. He was solid at that with the Spurs. He was getting into the high 40s in Toronto. He was more in the mid to low 40s from there. But now he's gotten to the point where he's so elite there that you – have to try to take that away, and that's very difficult. So a lot of it is just, I think, surprisingly, given that he's in his early 30s, he's just having his best season okay. from a shooting standpoint. I don't put that on necessarily the Bulls and the talent around him. Like, he's just making shots. However, he you mentioned how valuable he is. He is much more valuable. Like, so he'd be valuable playing like this on any team. But... It's very interesting. Gerard DeRozan is not a good defensive player. Like He can't really guard one-on-one. He can't switch. He really almost has to play the four defensively, but he's undersized. He's not a good health defender. Uh, it's very difficult to build a good defense around him. Mm-hmm. In theory, when you just look at the defensive side, like you got to hide him somewhere, and you got to have enough small players to guard the small guys, but then he's got to guard a big guy. That's not ideal. However... If you look at the holistic picture, the way that he's playing, his offense is so resilient where he's hitting these difficult contested mid-rangers in a place where it's very difficult to double-team him. Now you can put more defense around him. It doesn't matter as much that you don't have 
great shooting. You know, they've mm. had a guy like mm. Devontae Green or Derek Jones Jr. playing the four for them most of the year. That those guys are very bad shooters for fours in today's NBA. Alex Caruso is a below average shooter at the one. Some of their best lines have included him. But because his scoring is so resilient, you can now put more defensive players around him and at least when they've been healthy, craft a decent enough defense because his offense, he doesn't need a mm-hmm. ton of space to work. He doesn't have to, you don't have to play five out around him. Mm-hmm. That's a super interesting example. We often talk about compensatory effects, like a, a really good defensive back. He, you can put him on the best receiver one-on-one and it frees up the other guys to do some interesting things. Yeah. Or we think about a really special receiver that demands extra attention and he frees up room for the other receivers. It's it's interesting. You've given us an offense-defense compensation, which I hadn't thought about in, in basketball. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so Nate, let me ask you, how much do you have you studied or do you think about, we talk about this a lot here on Wharton Moneyball since we're an analytics show about the role of age. So, you know, DeMar DeRozan is great now. I've watched a ton of Bulls games this year. I'm not sure why. Maybe I just because I'm, I'm so against the mid-range jumper, but looking at his stats, <laughs> I have to keep watching this guy. Um, do you worry that all that he's 32, or not just even just DeMar DeRozan, like how much longer, I understand not everyone can be LeBron and play a great at age 37. Do you worry about an early 30s guy who's got a, also, he's an old 32 in the sense of, I was just looking at his stats, He's played a lot of minutes and a lot of games. How much do you worry about age curves in players? Well, obviously, it's one of the most important things, and it's one of the biggest things that can lead to some of the worst contracts, right? Like Russell Westbrook, now at age 33, one of the worst contracts in the NBA when at the time that he signed that five-year Supermax deal, it looked like, okay, yeah, he's, he's worth this now, but you have to understand this is what happens, especially as a athletic guard that doesn't have a ton of skill level from the outside. How is this player going to age? Other players can age a lot better, like Steph Curry or LeBron James or, or Michael Jordan. But as you look at it, there really are only a few players who after age 32 have been able to play at the level of a top five player in the NBA. And Steph Curry was arguably that last year. We'll see if people feel that way about him this year. He's been a little cold lately. Um, you know, LeBron was there. Jordan was there. Kareem was probably there. I was going to say, wasn't Kareem like 43 by the time he was out of the league? After yeah, but he was saying, but uh, Nate's <laughs> also saying top five player. Yeah. I think we'll be, what do you think? Here's yeah. an, let me just add another name, which I'm sure you're going to get to, Nate. Because of his injuries, do you think Kevin Durant has three to five more good years in him because he's at that age now, too. It's really interesting. He's been getting hurt a lot, but whenever he comes back from the injury, he just hasn't missed a beat, right? He's Think of all the injuries that he's had, and when he comes back, he looks like the exact same guy or even better, and now even getting into his early 30s. So, yeah, I think he's another one of those guys who could be in that mix. Um, you know, but he, you know, even someone like Kobe Bryant, you know, he suffered essentially a career altering injury at, at 33. He was one of the best players of all time. So it's just, it's mm-hmm. very rare. I do think Katie, particularly with his size and shooting ability, could be another player that can maintain that peak up to maybe 34 or, or 35. But yeah, that's the reality is that if you're really talking about a guy who's playing at that sort of a level and you're talking about the sort of player who's making a contract that's the equivalent of $50 million a year or 
uh, you know, 35% of the salary cap, which you can get after you've had 10 years of experience. The players who are going to be worth that money after 32, 33, I mean, those are historical players. Like beyond, you know, Russell Westbrook was a top 75 player of all time. We knew that he was, that was going to be a bad contract for him. Like you're talking about guys who are top 20 players, top 10 players of all time. What about somebody like Tim Duncan? To be that what about somebody like Tim Duncan? Would that have been predictable? Well, Tim Duncan, I think, really, after about 2008, probably wasn't in the conversation for being a top five or maybe even top ten player in the NBA. He had a ton of longevity and was able to continue to be effective. They obviously managed his minutes very closely. But if you look at that 2014 team, that was really an ensemble cast, right? He was maybe at best a lower-end all-star by that point in his career. So he had great longevity, but he also really wasn't a superstar player much in, into the decade of the 2010s. Well, he got very fortunate. Like, he got to play with Tim Duncan early on, and uh, David Robinson right early on in his career, and then later on he got to play with Parker and Ginobili. So, I mean, in some sense, his peak yeah. years, he was the man. In his early years, he played with the Admiral. and his later years, he played with two other people that, I know, we could debate. They're obviously not top 75 of all time, but, you know, well, Parker that, and Ginobili, not bad. But perhaps you, that argues for that these later contracts, exactly, right, these longer exactly. contracts are more about, they look dumber if you don't also kind of surround that aging player with the kind of compliments that would kind of, you know, longevitize his career, lengthen his career, I think. I guess that's well, let's not forget, <laughs> Tim Duncan took some pretty severe discounts at the end of his career, right? The, okay. And so did Parker, and, and so did Monty. Like, those guys weren't making the absolute maximum that they could make, which is part of why they were able to build those great teams around those guys for that 2014 team, which is still one of my favorite teams, though. We're talking to Nate Duncan. Nate is the host of Dunked on Basketball podcast. Nate, we, we've got to hear a little bit about your in, the NBA cast as well, because this is a very different way to watch a basketball game. It's on the NBA's League Pass Tell us, and you've been doing it for a few years now, tell us what it looks like right now. If we were to jump on and watch one of the ways you covered a basketball game, what would we see? Yeah, so it's a chance to have me and my partner Danny be your announcers. And so it's kind of a different approach to a play-by-play. I'm I'm kind of, you know, I'm the one who's talking more. I'm more of the play-by-play guy. But I try to do it where it's more stream of consciousness, like here's what I'm seeing from a strategic standpoint as the game goes on rather than he shoots, he scores type of stuff of just, Mm -hmm. hey, this is the play that they're running. This guy's coming over to help. Here's why this play succeeded and try to give you that in real time. And then obviously we focus a lot on the analytics as well. Danny does a good job chiming in with that stuff. And then we also actually take listeners' questions on the game or really anything else uh, via Twitter during the break, so you don't have any gaps. There's no commercials or anything. We're on League Pass. There's a subscription product, so we're able to actually stay on the air basically the entire game, except like a 10-minute break mm-hmm. during halftime. So I definitely hope people will check that out on NBA League Pass. You just go into the NBA app, click on the game. We do it every Monday. There's a little banner on the game that we're doing. So t- tell us a little bit about the way you guys use analytics in the in these in these in these broadcasts and in general where you see analytics right now how is it helpful to you what might you find frustrating about the world of analytics where where is it for you right now well during the games i think the biggest use of it is let's evaluate how these teams are playing 
outside of simply just what the score is, right? Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's that if you look at certain things like shot locations, where teams are, you know, turnovers, things like that, uh, you know, which teams are running, which aren't, you know, how you're performing with certain guys on the floor or not, what units did well, what units did poorly. All of that, I think, can have more predictive power over the course of a game than, oh, this team leads by five with two minutes left in the second quarter. So I think that's where you really can get a lot of use to think of like, hey, this is this is where we see this game going. These have been the major factors in it. And then to answer the second part of your so, question. So hold on, hold on, Nate, real, real quick. It, yeah, it, yeah, it, sure. what, it seems like it'd be nice, <laughs> just hearing you talk about it, it, it immediately asks for like how they're performing versus expectations, given even just shot quality, shot quality plus turnovers, whatever. I don't know, sh- turnovers aren't exactly exogenous, but like shot quality. We've got a there's a there's a website now shot quality that looks at college basketball games after the fact and evaluates teams, but you could also you could almost imagine a running graphic that showed okay here's the score but here's the expected score based on fundamentals and that expected score is probably it well if done well it would be more predictive of what happens next than the current score yes yeah I, I think that's true you know you would really need to have an algorithm getting into the tracking data and all that stuff to make that evaluation. We kind of try to do the human version of that Got throughout it. the game. If, Got it. If we can, it, it, okay. it's not as perfect, but yeah, you know, I mean, if one team is shooting three out of 22 from three in the first half, but they're getting wide open shots, you might say, Hey, if this yeah. continues, these guys are going to turn it around. And they're going to look a lot better in the second half because they're a good three point shooting team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, I interrupted you. You were going to offer a second one. Yeah, well, I think just from you asked about the state of analytics. I mean, it's just an essential part of evaluating basketball at this point in time, and it's been made a curmudgeonly boogeyman by certain commentators <laughs> in the media who distill it down to just, oh, no mid-range jumpers. You should never take a mid-range jumper. Mm-hmm. No, you shouldn't mm-hmm. take a mid-range jumper. When you're not good at taking a mid-range jumper, if you're DeMar DeRozan and you're shooting 50% on a shot that nobody can stop you from getting to, of course that's a good analytically Mm -hmm. focused shot, right? I mean, I think it's just when you – the biggest thing about it is just continuing to try to evolve your perspective. The numbers don't say something. It's how you are going to analyze the numbers. And so you have to continue to keep an open mind, keep looking – at the key trends that are uh, evolving the game. And so to just boil analytics down into, well, hey, this, this is, these are like the three things that analytics say, and that's not always true. That's far too fast. <laughs> right. Listen, we're, we're going we're gonna to have to let you go, but a couple quick last questions for you. One, what what team are you most excited to watch play? Like setting aside any personal preference you you have, just in terms of enjoying watching them play. This you can consider this like a tip to our listeners on if you haven't seen the Pacers play or whatever. Is there a team out there? Whenever you get the Monday schedule, oh, you're excited because you get to watch these guys. And play. then I'll, I'll give my answer, Nate. Let's see if we agree. Okay. Well, I think the team that I'm most excited about seeing here, I mean, Golden State, particularly because this might be their last run when they get Draymond Green back. I mean, they play a brand of basketball that's awesome to watch, but mm-hmm. outside of them, the Denver Nuggets, mm. if they can get Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. back and playing well, 
which is no guarantee because those guys are coming off long-term injuries, that Denver team could be just an incredible watch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. All right, Eric? I was answering a slightly different question. I just love watching John Morant play any game the Grizzlies uh, play because he oh, does yeah. stuff I haven't seen in a long, <laughs> long time. So I just like watching him play. And, by the way, they're not a bad team. No, they, they get out and run a lot. They talk a lot of junk as well. They're, they're young. <laughs> they're athletic. Yeah, I mean, John, John Morant, I agree with you, is probably the best night-to-night show in the NBA right now. Oh, geez, that's great. Okay, listen, last question we got to let you go. Give us a pick for your finals. Who do you see coming out of the East? Who do you see coming out of the West? W- with the caveat, we heard you say it up top, you wouldn't put more than 25% on any team winning this thing. But if you had to put your chips on two teams, what two would you pick? Yeah, thank you for that caveat. I would say the Miami Heat barely over the Bucks in the East. I just really like their defensive versatility, mm-hmm. and they've got a lot of shooting. They've just got a lot of smart, tough players. And then in the West, I do think that the Warriors, at absolute full strength, if healthy, with Draymond Green, have the highest ceiling of any group mm-hmm. in the West. But and the Suns have their own issues with Chris Paul potentially returning from injury. I think I would ultimately go with Golden State, despite the fact that they've really struggled lately. But we'll see. Again, that's one where I don't feel particularly strongly about them. I, I would give them pretty much equal chance with the Suns. And then I think there are some dark horses behind that with the Jazz Nuggets and Mavericks. And maybe the Grizz slightly behind them. <laughs> That's amazing. We asked you for two teams, and you gave us like eight. That says something about the state well, of the no, NBA. I, I no, mean, it's good. No, because... that, I take that as a positive thing about the league this year. This is We've complained a lot <laughs> over the years about that. Just go ahead and write it in. Cavs and Warriors. Yeah, Cavs no and Warriors once again. So we'll take this over that any day. Sounds good, guys. Nate, listen, thank you for taking the time. Nate Duncan, you guys can follow him at Nate Duncan NBA, at Nate Duncan NBA got a lot of interesting work appreciate your taking the time to be with us this afternoon that has been two hours of wharton moneyball two hours of sports analytics we do it every week here on sirius xm from the whole crew eric bradlow and shane jensen who've been here with me this last segment for audie weiner had to step away but he'll be back as he always is for the boss man maddie datz for the associate boss man Dion simpkins in the flesh right here thrilled to be working with you you guys thanks for listening Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.